Dennis and everyone for leading us. I think uh, it's always a pleasure to go to church and, and see that God has saints everywhere in a city, right? So I'm a Huntsville native, and so I love seeing an outpost of the kingdom right here on this side of town, right? Uh, when so many churches are closing their doors or compromising on the gospel, I'm just glad to be outposts of the kingdom and faithful singing and proclamation of the word. It's just a, it's a blessing. Um, so my name is Zach. Uh, Vivian said I had to say something about the family. I don't want to spend too much time, but uh, my name is Zach, and uh, got a wonderful bride of uh, coming up on 10 years in May, Morgan and my son Ellison Rose. They, uh, they wanted to be here, uh, but they were unable to be due to some providence. And uh, I'm just so grateful to be here. Uh, Andrew and I never knew each other in seminary, but we had a common friend, Matthew Morvey. And I just want to tell you something that I love and trust Matthew. And um, the fact that Andrew is here makes me all the more happy and grateful uh, for this church on this side of town. So uh, you guys have a pastor I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and I'm grateful to be at this place with you today. So our passage today, we're in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Our passage today is in the lar- is in the book, the, the largest books that we call the general epistles. Now, whereas Paul's letters were written to individual churches with individual contexts, the general epistles are written broadly to a lot of different people, and they all share similar circumstances. These were people who had grown up Jewish, converted to Christianity, and when the fire of persecution began to touch them, they considered going back to Judaism. And so uh, the author of the Hebrews writes the letter. It's really a collection of sermons. He, he writes this letter. It's distributed to encourage them to not abandon the faith, right? to not abandon the faith. Let me read these scriptures to get them out in front of us, and then I'm going to ask the Lord for help in preaching his word today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Brief, since Numbers was so long. Verse 14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, your word tells us that you delight in the worship of your people. And like Brother Mike reminded this morning, there are congregations throughout this city that are raising, Lord willing, uh, praise to you through the proclamation of the word and the singing of the word. Colossians tells us that doing those acts causes them to dwell richly in our hearts. When preachers get up and they do a wild task, Lord, they stand up and they say, thus saith the Lord. And like Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? I know, Lord, that I'm not. And so if these words are mine, uh, burn them up on the last day. But Holy Spirit, be gracious to me and let these words be your words. And cause them to be planted deep in the hearts of these saints here at Haven Baptist Church off Slaughter Road. And let this be a place that the kingdom springs out from as it has already sprung for so many years. Pray, God, for faithfulness today. Pray for Andrew that he would have rest. Pray for this team in Montana, Lord, prosper their work. 
go before them. Your word doesn't return void, so we pray for a great harvest, Lord. Uh, there's always been a harvest. There's been a lack of workers. Well, we've, this church has sent workers, Lord, so let them reap a harvest and plant and water for the next harvest, somebody else's harvest. God, give us grace as we try to hear your word and apply it with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, this, this book, this book of Hebrews, it's a great book. It's a book written to people who are thinking about walking away from the faith. But internally, each of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are moments when maybe we're not thinking about abandoning the faith, but we're tempted to sluggishness in the faith. We're tempted to passivity. And if you read through the book, there's a number of warnings in the book of Hebrews. Warnings against drifting off or sluggishness. These people were actively tempted to abandon the faith, but for us, right, and externally, they were suffering assaults, persecution, those sorts of things, but they also had the same internal temptations that each of us have, which is that we get a little tired with our faith. Maybe we never stop believing in Jesus, but the love that we had in the original is not as fine, right? It's not as, it's not as on fire. So this book has... 12 exhortations, that is 12 encouragements, and we're going to look at two of them this morning. And my goal is to show you the Christian life, I think, can be summarized in two of those exhortations. The first being, hold fast and draw near. Hold fast and draw near. And it should be kind of no, uh, no wonder then that when Andrew said, what songs would you like to sing? Uh, two of my favorite hymns, uh, modern hymns, He Will Hold Me Fast and Christ is Sure and Steady Anchor. Because in both of those... You have the exhortation, hold fast. Because here's the great one, and he will hold me fast. Jesus holds us fast. And he says that not even the devil himself could pluck us out of his hand. So Jesus is holding us. But our text today is, when the storms of life blow through me and my sails have all been torn, I'm going to hold fast to the anchor. And that's what we're reading about today, okay? Uh, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no illusion here that, that this is all on us. Christ is holding us fast for sure. But this passage today, and hopefully what I encourage you with today, is that as Christ holds fast to you, you hold fast to Christ and draw even more nearer to him. So there it is. Our first exhortation is to hold fast. And we're exhorted to hold fast to our confession. And that word means to seize and grab and never let go. You know, there's a, a movie where this scene is prominent, and, and when I read this passage, especially given all the anchor language that's already in the book of Hebrews, it's a, it's a movie called Master and Commander. Some of you are familiar with this. It's set in the Napoleonic Wars, and there's a British ship that's pursuing a, uh, a pirate, basically. And uh, the, 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 the boat's name, the, the pirate's ship's name, uh, is is Acheron, which means the border of hell. The HMS Surprise spots the Acheron, and it comes up on it, ready to make war. And there's this scene, it cuts to a young boy, probably 12 or 14. The, the British Navy employed young boys at that time to clean the decks and to run in spaces that they could they could fit better than older people, right? And the, the young boy looks terrified, because this is the first time he's coming face-to-face with death, with the border of hell. And the, the young boy looks at an old sailor, and the old sailor crunches his knuckles up, and on the knuckles it says, hold fast. 
in the Navy, you're going to hold fast to your ropes. You won't fall off the ship. And the uh, hold fast to the young boys that steal your nerves, boy. We will make it on the other side of this battle. It's another famous war movie. Uh, Scottish are, are making war against the English, and there's a cavalry charge. And uh, William Wallace is, is shouting, hold, hold. I just hold the pike. It's stay fast. Do not move. You see, the readers of this letter, when they first heard it, if it was a sermon delivered to them or if they read it later, they were thinking about jumping ship or leaving the front lines. We know this because later in the letter, our author is going to remind the readers that early in their walk, they had endured hard struggles with many sufferings because they had been exposed to many reproaches, Hebrews 10.35. But that they should not now throw away their faith. And they couldn't bail because, I think it's one of the best confessions in the Bible, that they should not walk away from the gospel because, quote, they are not like those who shrink back and are destroyed, but like those who have faith and persevere their souls. That's who true Christians are. We don't shrink back at the first sight of danger. We tighten our grip and ready ourselves for war. Why must they hold fast, though? Flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I want to set the scene for you a little bit. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you in an evil and unbelieving heart leading you away to fall away from the living God. Again, this is... This particular exhortation, hold fast, it doesn't take place in the context of they're burning your houses down. It takes place in the context of I'm going to drift and take it easy in my Christian life. Nothing bad will happen if I don't hold tightly. I can just get in the lazy river of the Christian life and I'll drift to Zion's shore. Right? God will hold fast to you. But when the rapids come, you also need to be holding fast to Christ. So why are they holding fast? Again, it's because they are tempted to fall away. So the apostle warns them, don't do it. Don't fall away. But why? It's not just because the Bible tells you to grit through things. No, it's because why? Verse 14, you have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. You have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. But why do we need a great high priest? You see, every human being has a desperate need for a high priest. Even before the Mosaic Law, all human beings, all mankind had a serious problem because our kind once enjoyed special fellowship with the Lord God in the garden. We're told that our first mother and father walked with God in the garden, but alas, you all know the story. Adam fell, and through his failure, all of Adam's children would now be born outside of the presence of God, outside of the garden which was marked by separation from God. But God, however, determined even before Adam's sin, Ephesians, Ephesians 1 tells us that before the foundations of the world, he intended on making his people blameless. So even before Adam's, Adam's sin, God determined that he would have a people for himself, for his own possession, a people to love who would glorify him. So through Moses, God institutes a system Right? A system of curtains to where God can live in the middle of his people, but his glory, his refining glory, would be contained so it would not consume them. Because God would not be denied the presence of his people he loved. He was determined to be with them, albeit 
separated by curtains. This is so that the righteous character of God would not be defiled, but mainly in order that they would not be consumed. And in order that he would dwell with his people, he, he, he called a certain class of people. He anointed a certain class of people and made them priests. What was their job? They had three functions. The first was is that they would ensure covenant faithfulness, that they would ensure that people were obeying the law. Right after the passage that Brother Mike read, uh, we have people who violate the Sabbath, and they're judged for it. That's what the priest's first job was. And if enforcement failed, right, they were, they were to be national representatives. That is, they had a duty to lead the people of God to actually obey the law of God. But when they failed, one among them would be appointed the high priest who would make atonement for their sins. The passage in Numbers that we read, Numbers chapter 15, it shows you all the ways that God determined that he would live among his people. The Old Testament isn't a book about God dividing himself, stepping away from his people. The same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New Testament. He is determined to live with his people. So he says, you're going to sin. Let me tell you how to fix your sin so that I can still live with you. But the death of the goat and the bull, they represent a substituted death. Rather than dying for their own sins, God is training his people, even in the Old Testament, to wait for a substitute who will die for their sins. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1 of Hebrews says this, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Right? This is, this is who our Christ is. The people of God, they needed a high priest in order they would not be consumed by God's just righteousness and enjoy his presence. And each and every one of us has that same God problem. In our natural tendencies, we hate God and his statutes. And the consequence for us is the righteous judgment of God and that it rests on the earth and everyone for their sins. And there is no escaping that reality. The Bible tells us that in this present age, God has dealt gently with us and that his, his lack of returning shouldn't be counted as slowness, Peter tells us, but as patience because God is waiting to save all of the ones who will believe. Scripture testifies it's appointed to, to uh, man to one, die once, and after that comes judgment. The wrath of God will either be poured out on you in the future, or if you hide yourself in Christ, the wrath of God has already been poured out on Christ. That's, that's the options for the earth. You just get to pick when and where you receive the wrath. You receive it on Christ, who you have faith in, and say, that man was born for me, or do you want to try to, to stand alone? Brothers and sisters, hold fast to Christ. But it's not just a definitive need that we have. We also have a definitive help of the high priest. In Christ, every person has definitive help from the high priest. Our apostle here wants us to be assured that we have a high priest who did far more than passing through the curtains of that temple. Read with me here. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, oh, excuse me, verse 14, who passed through the heavens. The Old Testament priests passed only through curtains. But this high priest, this Jesus Christ, is categorically different than the high priest. See, the high priest, they were so weak, they were so weak that sometimes 
to go into the holiest of holies to make atonement for sins, and they would die. So you'll read in Levitical, in Levitical law that the high priest would have a bell attached to their foot so the people outside the curtain could listen, and they would know if the bell stops, better pull that rope out. And what are you pulling out? The corpse of a priest, someone who got too close, someone who's too casual, someone who didn't pay attention. But Jesus Christ, he doesn't just pass through curtains. Because he is the Lord God incarnate, he passes through the heavens. And at his crucifixion, that very curtain is what? Ripped open. Because Jesus now not only, not only opens up the heavens so that we can experience the loving presence of God in the Holy Spirit, but also opening up now the dividing wall which kept us away from the presence of God so that now all people everywhere, not just high priests, can not only know God, but God can live within them. Wonderful work. This is the work of Jesus Christ. When it says he passed through the heavens, that's another way of saying he ascended to the presence of the Father. The heavens is another way of saying that Christ has gone to be with the Father. Just like it says in Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, this is the place, this is the realm where God lives. And of course, the apostle here has already talked about Christ sitting down at the right hand of majesty. The book opens up and saying, after making purification for sins, Christ Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty. You know, when I'm finished working in my yard and I finish the work, the first thing I do is I sit down and enjoy the rest of a job well done. That's what Jesus has done after making satisfaction for sin. But why does the apostle link under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the work of a great high priest with great confession. Why, why is that happening then? Because that great high priest is able to do what we're waiting for in Hebrews 3, to overwhelm our evil, unbelieving hearts and hold us fast. Right before this, you'll remember, verse 12 of chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are made vulnerable by the word of God. Because here's the truth. You know what I'm thinking? As Mike's reading that text and thinking, unintentional sin, unintentional sin. Oh, man, how so often I've been selfish intentionally. I've been impatient intentionally. And praise God that we now have a priest who is able to overwhelm our evil and unbelieving hearts. Yes, that's right. The book of Hebrews is filled with so-called warning passages, which warn those of us who would abandon ship or flee the front line that there's no help outside of Christ. Each of these warning passages functions not to undermine assurance of faith, but to strengthen the faith of the faithful. Then you already, you already picked the right side. You're already on the right line. Don't go away now. There's no other place to fight the battle. Imagine if you or I ever walked away from the faith. We would be abandoning the sure promise of salvation. Imagine, in your minds with me, sanctified imagination, if Shem, Noah's son, 
was getting onto the ark as the waters began to fall, as the rain began to fall. I was explaining to my little boy Ellis. Um, he uh, he's he's starting to learn these Bible stories, and he um, he's asking me one day because you know the text says it had never rained, and part of Noah's faith is not that they'd ever seen rain before, like oh it's going to flood. No, it had never rained. The waters Genesis said had sprung up from the ground. So people had no concept of water coming down from heaven at that day. And that's what made Noah's faith so much more incredible. For my son, that kind of blew his mind. He didn't know, he didn't have a category. I was like, well, this is, this is the word of God. Now imagine if Shem was getting on the ark as the rains began to fall. This is the first time rain has fallen, right? And he's getting on and he's safely sheltered inside the ark from God's judgment. And he's enjoying the provisions that his father prepared for him, Noah. You see where I'm going with this? Noah's obediently stored provisions. He's made provisions for his son to enjoy his presence and shelter. But halfway through the flooding, imagine that Noah remembers an old love, a best friend, the life he had before he climbed onto the ark. Now imagine if he leapt from the ark into the floodwaters below, and the whole way Noah would be pleading, don't do it, don't leave the ark. And now imagine Shem struggling for life like all of those who Moses told us about who had the breath of life in their nostrils and they were snuffed out, blotted away from the earth. That, brothers and sisters, is the purpose of these warning passages in Hebrews. It's not to scare us that we might fall away. It's to say, you're on the ark. Don't leave. Anyone who abandons Shep is abandoning the sure foundation of their faith. And that's because the work of Jesus Christ satisfies God's righteous wrath. The wages of sin is death, and if that death is to be avoided, God's law required a perfect, sinless offering, some representative to take the place of the criminal. It must be one for one. Graciously, God had allowed bulls and goats temporarily in those curtains so that he wouldn't be denied his people to pass as a substitute, and that was never permanent. Every year, a new priest had to be chosen, and every year, a new atonement offering would have to be made on the Day of Atonement. But the worst news for the son of Adam came next, because there was no one born among men who could serve as this perfect representative. They had been waiting forever, right? God says, one will come who will give you rest. And so what does Noah's dad hope? Noah will be the one who gives rest. That's what Noah means, right? Everybody's hoping, and everybody's waiting for a baby. If you ever wonder why the Bible has so many genealogies, it's not just because it says, check the historical facts, it checks out. It's also because everybody's waiting for a baby. They're waiting for the one who will be the one to crush the head of the serpent, right? So you finally get that one. For the Father had known from the foundations of the world and decreed that the Son would take on flesh, because there would be no one born unto Adam who would be able to do this. It would be the Son who he would send by work of the Holy Spirit to supernaturally conceive the baby boy in Mary. Right, And this Son would suffer the penalties of the curse, meaning he would die, but not only that, the Son of God would also endure God's own righteous justice in order that he would be qualified now to extend mercy to those who needed it. A just and righteous judge doesn't ignore the law. And somebody who says, 
I'm going to have mercy while ignoring the law is not just, nor are they merciful. Right? But God, the Son, had to also represent the people of God if he was going to make a substitutionary sacrifice for them. So the book of Philippians tells us he emptied himself, becoming humbled unto the point of death. Right? Jesus becomes for us the pleasant aroma of number 15. The sin offering. The drink offering. It's not incidental that Jesus holds up the cup of wine and says, this is my blood, right? Jesus is the one. And that work on the cross qualifies Christ as the high priest who serves as the one and only mediator between God and man. And that, brothers and sisters, is our confession, that Jesus Christ is the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man. And abandoning that confession means abandoning all help from that great high priest, exposing ourselves back to this uh, Hebrews 4.13, no creature hidden from his sight, all naked and exposed to the one to whom we must give account. And for me and my household, we will not, we will not leave the ark because if it's on me to be naked and exposed. I'm not ready for that. And neither are you. Do not give up your confession. And to be clear, I don't think anybody is giving up their confession, but every single Sunday, we need to be reminded that when we go back out of this harbor, this safe harbor that is in the church, back in the choppy waters of, of the workplace and of the temptations of wherever it is that we live, that we need to hold fast to our confession. I used to be a pastor in Louisville before we moved down here. And uh, uh, Andrew can tell you about this. Louisville was always embarrassed that it was on the south side of the Ohio River. It always wanted to be Chicago. It always wanted to be Indianapolis, Detroit, these cities. And so it seemed like it would always go headfirst into cultural issues, let the one who has ears hear, right? There were young children present. And one of the challenges that I always had as a pastor in that town was to remind my people that, yes, you are going to go out in Babylon, and the Babylonians are going to worship false gods, but brother and sister, hold fast. They're going to turn up the heat on you at work, but hold fast. And they did. It, it's unreal, right? Let the one who has ears hear, okay? It was unreal to watch. And that hasn't happened to this degree here yet, but it will come. Scriptures tell us it will come. Persecution will come. It will, it will happen. And we need to now prepare ourselves to know, even if you don't feel it yet, right? That's the external threat. But I know, according to Scripture, we feel it internally every day. Oh, I'm not going to, I don't really want to wake up and read the Bible this morning. I'm too tired. Or like, I just, I'm running late for work. I don't have time, right? It's a dangerous place to be, that subtle slippage, that subtle loosening of the grip, right? It may not wash you away today. And it may not wash you in 10 years but it will eventually wash you away. The first exhortation, hold fast. But Christ doesn't want for you just to hold fast. He loves you, so he wants you to draw near. He wants to be near you. Verse 16. I want to read verse 15 as well. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but within every respect he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'll make a few comments about that. Listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He 
if you look at all of the gods of the world, all the world religion gods, all of them are always about keep away until you're good enough. When you're ready and you're good enough, then you can come to me. For the ancient Greeks, it was when you receive perfection in physical form. That's what all the statues were about. In Islam, it's if you weigh out the scales and you follow the five pillars, then you can draw near. Christianity says the opposite. It says, you're not ready, so draw near. It's incredible. Now, I know there are a million reasons why your grip might be slipping this morning. Perhaps you're wrestling with a long pattern of hidden sin. Perhaps your marriage gives you little hope that the redeeming of the possible has, gospel has any effect at all. Or perhaps you feel the cost of discipleship acutely because Jesus says it will be hard to pick up your cross. It is hard to live the Christian life. And he's bidding you to come and die. It now just seems too great. There's good news for you this morning. Good news that you can receive mercy to not just hold fast, but that God wants you to draw near, even though your grip is slipping. So the second encouragement from the apostle is to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And with all this talk of righteous judgment and wrath, is there good news? How can there be any good news? But the good news is, is that the one who is the righteous judge has not only done everything necessary to save you for your sins, but now he wants you to be with him. But not only that, verse 15, he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to have a weak grip, even though he himself will never let go. See, we have two details here that give us clues and should encourage us all the more. First, we have a sympathetic high priest. If you're taking notes, first, we have a sympathetic high priest. And second, we have a tempted yet sinless high priest. First, our sympathetic high priest. Christ, being that high priest, in no way gives the impression that Christ is okay with stumbling. I get this from two passages. The first is Hebrews 2.17, where the apostle tells us, Christ, quote, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sin of the people, end quote. And then our text here. His sympathy is directly connected to his high priestly work. Jesus doesn't look at sin and says, I'm okay with it. He's not okay with it. That's why he took it head on at the cross. But he's sympathetic because he knows how powerful sin is. So his sympathy here is not, quote, a sympathetic understanding which condones everything is okay, but it's a fellow feeling which derives from a full awareness of how desperate the situation is. He sees a seriousness of the situation where we might not. I want you to hear the words of B.F. Westcott, an old commentary here. It says, quote, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial, Christ's sympathy, does not depend here on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength and temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. That's a great quote because what it means is that what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, none of us have resisted sin to the point of shedding our own blood. But there is one who to the very end said, this is painful, but I will not, I will not disobey the Father. So only Jesus is, is powerful enough to know, 
how tempting sin is. Because in the end, we all give up at some point, which tells us we don't really know how strong sin is. Right? Sometimes driving on Highway 72, tempted to anger. I grew up, I remember when you could drive and not have to wait in traffic on Highway 72 after a flood, right? This, it used to be nice. Now, I don't even try to come through Athens to get in Huntsville. I just straight to 565. It's not even worth these stoplights, right? But the person who, who drives patiently knows what it's like to, to fully bear with traffic and to a much more serious level. The person who decides not to sin and never give in, they're the only ones who truly know how difficult sin is to fight. And I, brothers and sisters, I think our, accountabil- our accountability meetings could learn a thing or two from these verses. I've sat in a lot of them. I still have accountability partners myself. And uh, I've sat in a lot of them where, where people will share over and over, I'm struggling with anger right now, struggling to forgive this person right now, struggling with A, B, and C. And too often, the encouragements in these circles are, it's okay, God forgives you. And that is true, brothers and sisters. God does forgive to the uttermost, separating our sins as far away as the east is from the west. That is a fact. But the overall answer, my my fear and concern is that it might lead us to a kind of casualness. I want us instead to have Christ's high priestly sentence this fellow feeling of the dreadful seriousness of sin. Instead of a share time, we're just sharing in a circle. I would love for our accountability groups to begin to look like war rooms where we have maps on the wall of any movements and we're thinking strategically, where do we need to put our logistical supply chains to fight the enemy? So we're not thinking about, it's okay. Instead, we're thinking about, the enemy has tank positions here and There's a battery position here, and maybe we can outflank on this side. That, that is the kind of accountability that takes serious sin in this temptation. If you and I enter an emergency room with some laceration or infection, we all need a surgeon who's going to sympathize with us, evaluating with deadly seriousness our condition, right? But I don't want one who himself sees that, I've been cut, and it's like, oh, it's okay. No, I want him to have had four years of medical school, four years of residency, to where he knows exactly the cure. How much greater is it then that our high priest who passed through the heavens brings all of heaven's resources down to bear on our our afflictions because he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. Then second, as our tempted yet sinless high priest. Most of us are acquainted with the temptations of Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter 4. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it, but I do want to make a few observations. First, Matthew tells us the Spirit, but by the Spirit, Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I believe that is one of those things which the author of Hebrews was referring when he said that Jesus was going to be tempted like his brothers. Second, and related to his high priestly role in that Matthew narrative, Christ represents the people in the most perfect way. I want you to marvel at this for a second, Matthew 4, where the Israelites, right, couldn't, couldn't hang, where everything was provided for them, right, where the presence of God was leading them through the wilderness, and they still chose to disobey. They disembroiled out of Egypt. 
I want to take you back even further than that, though. Because in a perfect place, at a perfect time, with every need met, Adam could not keep himself from eating one thing. Christ, in the most desolate place, at the worst possible time, he's tempted after he's been fasting for 40 days. Not before, but after. So he's already weak, according to his human nature. And then third, he's being tempted by the devil himself. All of us are tempted and harassed. But this is a hard moment. Martin Scorsese once blasphemy wanted the extent of Jesus' temptations. But Jesus never once wavered in his obedience to the Father. He even submitted to his will in the hour of suffering, the greatest temptation of Gethsemane. Christ endured far greater temptations than you and I ever will. You will never, and I will never, have the sins of the world on my shoulders. I will never have the wrath of God poured out on me by the grace of God because Jesus is my Savior, because I could not stand up under that. And so we are encouraged to look to his endurance as an example. Hebrews 12, I've referenced it already, verse 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostilities against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted, letting your grip slip. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. All of this that Jesus Christ endured the strongest temptations but remained faithful. So then where is the good news? Verse 16. He is a merciful high priest who gives mercy and grace at times of need. Amen. That's right. It's not just that we have a sympathetic high priest or we have a sinless high priest. We have a merciful high priest. By virtue of his sympathy and his temptation without sin, He's able to know what it's like to be us. And that's why you and I must draw near to him when we have need. I'm reminded of Bartimaeus in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. He's a blind man. He's sitting on the roadside begging. I think it's a perfect example of Jesus Christ as a merciful high priest because it illustrates the sort of sympathy that Jesus has for us and for sin. Jesus was never afflicted with blindness but his high priestly work means that he has that fellow feeling which derives from that full awareness of a serious affliction of guilt. Jesus knows why Bartimaeus is blind, and he hates the sin that made him blind. As he's traveling on the road, Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, which is itself a confession of faith. I know who you are, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus doesn't hear him the first time, and those around Jesus, presumably wanting you know, his ear, try to quiet Bartimaeus up. So Bartimaeus cries even louder, Son of David, have mercy. I mean, I love the details of the text. Don't miss them. They're from the Holy Spirit for us. Mark tells us that Jesus stopped in his tracks and called the man to himself. The man never said, Jesus, it's Bartimaeus over here. Have mercy on me. No. Jesus stops in his tracks and says, Bartimaeus, come to me. And he heals the man, and then he keeps walking. Because Jesus has, Jesus has a mission. He's going to the cross. But his mission is the people. He's on his way to make atonement for Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus doesn't even really know what it means that Jesus is the son of David. But Jesus stops his tracks and calls Bartimaeus to himself. I wonder what that was like. Bartimaeus had to wonder, how do you know my name? I'm just a beggar on the street. My own parents don't know where I'm at. My siblings don't know where I'm at. 
Because in ancient Israel, they would have, it would have been required by law to take him into their house and to care for him. That's why in 2 Timothy, Paul says, those who don't take care of their family are worse than unbelievers. These are, he should have had a safety network, and he didn't. He's alone. Nobody knows his name except for the Lord on his way to Jerusalem. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the Gospels are full of all of these accounts. Jesus stopping what he was doing immediately to effect aid for those suffering under the weight of the curse of sin. You might feel your grip slipping now, unable to hold fast, so you draw near to him and find mercy and grace. If you feel as if you can't hold on much longer, draw near and find mercy and grace. Now, a practical word, how how do we do that? There are kind of four things I'd love for us to think through, just brief sentences, and then... uh, I'll pray and and we'll sing and close. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to know Christ. We need to know Christ. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't have anything to grab onto. You might have good works you can hold onto, but those are straw and they will fade away. You need to know Jesus. You don't just need to know him just as an idea. Psalm 78, I love what Psalm 78 says. Psalm 78 says, tell the coming generations his works so that they may know the Lord. Psalm 78 is a great psalm. Uh, We read it it, it, at River Tree. It's one of the the scriptures that frames the way we do family ministry. Uh, Because if you're going to hold fast, you need to know his prior works. Psalm 78, the whole principle is we know God will save us in the future because he saved us in the past. So we need to know that. You need to know that personally. I know he'll take care of me in the future because I know how he's taken care of me in the past. He's got my back. He will hold me fast, and I will hold him fast. This is the first. We need to know what he's done, Psalm 78. We also need to look. look. That's the second thing we need. We need to look and see the man upon the cross. I love that song, Stuart Townsend. Behold the man upon the cross. Why? Because it's old when, when Jesus is talking uh, in the New Testament. He says what he's going to do. At the very beginning, he says the Son of Man will be lifted up. He'll be lifted up. Why? That goes back all the way to the Old Testament where Moses makes a serpent. He holds it up so that people will be saved from the plague that they've unleashed upon themselves. Their own sin caused that plague. So each of us needs to look up and behold the man upon the cross, the one alone who is making atonement for sin. The, there are a group of people in church history called the Puritans, and, and they used to answer the question. Because one, one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation would say, would say, well, how do you know you're saved? Because, you know, we know because we attend Mass three times a day, or three times a week. We know because we don't eat fish on Friday. All these other things. We pray the, the rosary. We pray the Hail Marys. All of that. I mean, you guys are familiar with that. And the Puritans would say, we know we're Christians because Jesus went up on the cross. He didn't stay down here. He came down from the cross and he went to heaven. And he's going to come back and bring us back to heaven. We need to look and see Jesus on the cross. The third thing you need to do is you need to walk. You need to walk in fellowship with the Spirit. How? Right? Being in His Word. There's no spiritual practices that's going to give you some God feeling. 
bigger compromise than that. The only way you'll meet God is in the Word. Reading the Word and hearing the voice of God in that. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't leave us to wonder what your will is. Everything else, there's freedom, right? There's freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is. But here you have, you, have the, you have the Word of God saying, this is my will for your family. This is my will for how you work in, in your jobs. This is my, work for, in my will for how you vote. All these things. It's right here. Walk. You'll walk according to the Spirit, not according to the Word and its practices. By reading and praying. And then finally, you'll sit. It sounds weird maybe to say walk and then sit. But you know, walk in the Bible is a state of being. It's a metaphor. Ephesians 4.1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That echoes back to the Old Testament idea that there's never a moment, whether we're sleeping, eating, drinking, walking to work, where we're not doing so under the gaze of our loving Father in heaven. And so walk means just be, but sit is the other, is the other image in the Old Testament. We want to sit and rest. Because when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he means it. Because there is already someone else sitting at the right hand of the Father. You don't need to be standing and wondering, how am I going to be safe in that place? Jesus Christ has sat down and he invites you with an with a easy burden and light yoke to sit and rest. Rest to sit and rest. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, like Bartimaeus, we pray, Son of David, have mercy on us. We are sinners. And we're sinners ways in ways, Lord, that by your grace you haven't even shown us, you haven't overwhelmed us with the knowledge of the depth of our depravity because we couldn't bear it. But gently, week after week, year after year, you slowly refine us. You slowly refine us, washing us in the word, washing us, washing us in the word, that would be holy and blameless before you. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this outpost of the kingdom. I pray that you be gracious to them. God, bless their pastor as he rightly divides the word week in and week out. Cause this place to prosper. This city is growing, but it's also growing with people that don't know the Lord Jesus. Just last week at my church at River Tree, we met people who had never been to church in their whole life. They were coming from Chicago, Minneapolis, and California, and they didn't know where to go to meet people, so they just came into a church. God, may that happen here. And also, though, Lord, may we go out from here to them and find them. Your word says you're preparing a banquet. Nobody's showing up, and so you say, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come into my house. I pray that I pray for this church, Lord, that they would be filled with the Spirit, and that they would hold fast, and Lord, they would draw near. God, help them. I already feel feel so, so much love for these people, because they're saints bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I pray your blessing over them. Keep them, Lord. Hold them fast. This world is hard. It is hard to be a Christian. It is hard to pick up our cross and die daily. But Lord, hold them fast as they hold to you. Finally, Lord, I pray for Andrew's wife, Lord, Megan, that she would be blessed. This church would grow in spiritual health more than numbers. God, be gracious to this place.
we ask all this knowing that you will do, as your word says, more than we can ask or imagine. You will do many great things, we pray, Lord. And I pray that Haven Baptist Church is a pivotal part of that work in Madison, as I know they will be. I'm grateful for them, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name.